Morning, everybody. Uh, we're going to jump back in the Word today. I'm not going to waste any time because we got a pretty good bit of ground to cover. So we're going to jump right in. If you got a Bible, go to Judges chapter 6, and that's where we're going to land. Um, as I say every week, we're uh, this is not church. This is studying the Word together. But tonight is when we have church. Tonight we're actually going to get together and spend some time eating, hanging out, just, just having a good time in our home. Uh, we're going to throw in the Super Bowl, all that kind of stuff. If you want to come, we'd love for you to come. Or you just want to know more about who we are, uh, I'll give you uh, what you need. You should see it there, how you can connect with us online through social media or through the website or email or however you want to do it. And uh, hit us up. We'll tell you where we are. We're in East Valley, Tempe, Arizona specifically, that part of the East Valley of Phoenix. Love for you to come. Don't care where you are. Uh, but if you're over here, for sure, that would be Awesome. So we've been doing this series of Is God Among Us? Not one of us, but is he among us? And today we're going to look at is he among us calling us to action, calling us to act. That's what we're looking at today. So we've been working on this theme of Revelation 21 verse 3 where uh, John recorded, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He'll dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So, going into it today, is God among us, calling us to act? That's where we're sitting today. And most of us would agree, I think, that we have a purpose. Everybody, I think, generally believes that they're here for a reason, whether you're a believer or not a believer. But the real question is, how specific is that reason? Um how specific would you say your purpose is? And if you're a believer, how specific would you say God defines it for you? Does he do that? Does God define a specific purpose for you? Um, is that something he would do just for you? Like something specifically for you? What if he did, though, and it was a huge ask? Like what if that what he designed for you was huge? And what if, like with Joshua, which we talked about last week, what if it was bringing glory only to him and not to you at all? What if it brought shame to you but glory to him? Would you accept it? Would you do that? Think about that a minute now. What if it brought shame to you but glory to him? Would you accept it? And what if it seemed impossible? What if it was like, man, this is great, but man, what, this will never happen. Would you question God? Was it re- God, is that really you that's calling me? Because you should know better than this. Like, Or would you rationalize your way out of it? Would you say, well, you know. If you think about it, you know, we twist, twist it up until you, until you don't even know if you're supposed to do it or not. Anyway, that's where we're landing in Judges and looking at a case like that. So go to Judges chapter 6, throw on these fantastic glasses, even though I got big print. It's going, folks. It's going. Um, Judges chapter 6. I'm going to read a few verses. We're going to cover a little more, but I'm going to read from 11 to 14. It says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth at Orpah, which belonged to Joaz, uh, Joash the Abazite, who, uh, it says, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, Please, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. 
The Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. Let me pray on that one. Lord, I love you. I thank you for your word. It is awesome. Thank you for the privilege of laying into it and studying it. Um, as much as I get wound about video, thank you for the privilege of being able to connect with people uh, in some way, especially during this time with the pandemic and all of that. God, I thank you for the privilege of being called. And, and, I, and I believe that for all of us who are believers, but I'm being personal at the moment and thanking you for that privilege. Thank you for letting me open your word and trusting me with it. And I pray that today you're honored by that. And I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So how do you know, how do you know if you're called? Like I've heard that question so many times and I've asked it myself, probably more often than you would imagine, repeatedly saying, am I sure that was a call? Um, you know what? It's in our nature to doubt it. Even when we know we're called, it's in our nature to kind of doubt it. And for instance, we know we were called to move to Arizona and plant a church. Like we are certain of that. Um, and I'm not going to take the time now to go into what that looked like. I'll be happy to tell you. I'm just not going to take the time now. But there's no doubt that God called us to this. But still, but still, every day, I'm being transparent a little bit, every day I wrestle with, like, how? How? Or are you sure, God? You know? Or why me? Why, why, why did you pull me of all the people to do this? You looked at me lately, God, you know? Or hey, you know how old I am? <laughs> or was I just imagining this all? Did I just put this in my head? You know, and I think back, I'm like, no, I know for a fact. But, but why me? Or what are you doing? God, what are we doing? All those things still go to my head and still things I wrestle with pretty much every day, even though I know I'm called. The call to come here, though, was pretty specific. All right. And I've been in ministry for over 17 years at the time that we were called to come here. So maybe the you think about before that like how is God calling how did God call us into ministry to begin with? How do you know if God's calling you into ministry to be a pastor, to be a worship leader, to be a missionary, uh whatever it is, and how do you know how are you sure it's from God? Great questions. A pastor said once, if you can do anything else, do it. And that is the most simple way to answer that question, but a good way. If you can do anything else, do it. That's a good way to start out with knowing if you're called. Um, but what if you've never felt called into ministry? What if you never felt like being called into full-time ministry? Does that mean you have no purpose because you haven't felt that way? Um, and God has no use for you in his kingdom? No, we're going to get into that. So today, God approaches Gideon, like I just read. And, and, and someone, Gideon is someone who is completely unlikely and unexpecting. And God calls him to take a lead role in the revealing of God's kingdom on earth. And I want you to ask yourself, is God among us? And is he calling me to action? I want you to ask yourself that question. Is he calling me to act in some way? Uh, challenge him if you need to. Challenge God if you need to. But maybe it's time to say yes to worship. Not just worship in, in the sense of going to church and getting on your knees, but worship the kind of worship that allows you uh, to, to be used by him to reveal his kingdom to others. 
You understand what I'm saying? So here's the way this encounter looks in the moment, and, and uh, we'll break it down as we go through. But this is not a you know an action type outline. This is just easy way to think about what's going on. You have the encounter that happens. You have the call that happens. Then you have the challenge, and then you have the response uh, that happens. So really quick, one more thing before we jump back in. Quick background. So you have it's been centuries. After centuries of being slaves in Egypt, Israel has been freed. They are all the way back to the promised land now. They faced Jericho. They faced other battles, but they failed to remove all the pagan people um, from the land like God had told them to. And ultimately, they would return to idols. Exodus 23, if you go all the way back there, it talks about God told them if they didn't get rid of the pagan peoples there, they would be enticed to idols. In fact, they have been. If you look at Josh, or Judges chapter 2, if you go back there, verses 1 to 4, the angel of the Lord actually calls them out on it, says, you guys are doing this again now. And, and so begins these centuries... From Joshua's death until the first king, which was Saul. So all of that time, the centuries of time, you have this time of judges. And basically it's this vicious cycle of God's people turn into idols. And then God raises up like a foreign power of some kind to oppress them. And then they cry out to God for deliverance and repentance in some cases. And then God raises up a deliverer or a judge to set them free. They're free. Then they turn to idols and repeat, and it keeps going. So that's it's all foreshadowing the one judge, Christ, who would eternally set his people free. But there you go. So we have the encounter first. We're going to move quick through it. In verse 11, it says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat. That's physical being. Um, he's able to sit under the terebinth, which is a kind of tree. Uh, at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash, the Abiezrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. So verse 11 and verse 24, which we'll get to in a minute, but those two verses kind of bookend this section. Uh, and it gives us a very specific time period, a physical location, names, basically... If you were closer to that time period, you could have traced this and you could have gone to look where ultimately he builds a um, altar. You could have gone and found the altar. You, you know, these are real times, real places. So Gideon's standing there and he's beating out wheat, trying to produce some grain so his family can have some food to eat, which tells you the, the environment uh, of the times. But the real tell sign here is he's on his own family's property, but he's in a wine press. Which is odd. You don't beat wine in wine presses. You press olives. So what's happening is he's hiding, trying to do it. That's because the Midianites were stealing all of their food because they were oppressed by them. And suddenly he notices this man who's just sitting there underneath a tree. Much like when Joshua, we talked about last week, was walking by Jericho. And he sees this man there holding a a sword, which it was the angel of the Lord. But in this case... Uh, this man under the tree, who is also the angel of the Lord, is holding a staff this time, not a sword. And rather than leading an invasion with Joshua, we're talking about Gideon being called as a shepherd. And there's going to be battle involved here, but it will require shepherding Israel back into worship of their God. And that's the picture of what's going on. So many times, you know, God calls us to go, to do, to speak. And it's in the worst of times. It's in the worst of times. It's in the most unlikely moments. It's like, God, if you'll fix this world, I'd love to tell them about Jesus. You know what I mean? It's it's in the 
roughest of times when God says, come, go, speak. And rather than rescue us, though, he challenges us to act, challenges us to do something. And and never uh, for our kingdom, it's always to shepherd and grow his kingdom. Look at verse 12. It says, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord. Now, in your Bible, that's probably in all caps. It's, it's the proper name, Jehovah, Yahweh, saying, I am. Jehovah is with you. That word, you, is singular. So it's saying, Jehovah's with you, singular. Oh, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said to him, please, my Lord. Now, that's a different word, Lord. That's the word Adonai, or ruler, or important person. So Gideon doesn't recognize this as Jehovah, per se. He's just calling him Lord, ruler. Please, my Lord, if the Lord, now he's saying caps, if Jehovah is with us, look what he said. He went to the plural word, us. Why then has all this happened? So basically, God, Jehovah, is saying, uh, Jehovah is with you, Gideon, almighty man of valor. And Gideon says, please, ruler, if Jehovah is with us, why has all this happened? So Gideon recognizes that the person's speaking to him, but he doesn't realize it's about him specifically. He thinks that it's in a more general sense, which is actually a cool thing. It shows his heart. Like he's not thinking about himself. He's thinking about his his people as a whole. They suffer together. You know, it's kind of the opposite, unfortunately, of today's Christianity. Today's Christianity is about why hasn't God made my life better or why won't God speak to me or why hasn't God blessed me? But look at verse 13. He goes on. He says, and where, where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us, and he's given us into the hand of Midian. I don't know if you ever felt like Gideon. I can promise you I have plenty of times. Where are all these miracles I read in the Bible? You know, Where's the whole sea-splitting thing now? You know, uh, where, Where's all that stuff? If God's with his people, if God's living in my heart, like it says, why is life miserable? Well, a couple of things to note there really quick. First of all, suffering is not because God doesn't care or isn't involved. In fact, his own son suffered worse than anyone has. Suffering is not about that. Suffering is because we're in a sinful world, and unfortunately, even God's people choose that sinful world over him. Now, if that stings, it stings me, but because I can account for that myself. We're in a sinful world, and even as his people we frequently choose the sinful world over him. And so suffering shouldn't be a surprise. Another reason, another thing to note here anyway, is that miracles have never convinced anybody, never convinced anybody that God is there. It might, uh, it might help you be persuaded to believe that he's there for a period of time, but it will never convince you that he's there. Even Israel went right back to idols after crossing the Red Sea. It happened. Jesus himself said in Luke sixteen thirty one, if they don't believe God's word, then they won't believe even if someone is raised from the dead. That's what he said. He also said in another place, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. He said that in John twenty twenty nine. So the miracles aren't going to prove it to you anyway. But I get it, man. I get it. To be fair, sometimes 
We get overwhelmed with life. We get wore out and we wonder where God is. Like, where are you at? And maybe in moments when we're most exhausted, he reveals his presence. He reveals himself in those moments when we're most stressed out. But, but not just to make us feel better. It's never happening. It's to call us to act. It's to call us to act. Because listen, if you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. The best way to boost your faith is to put it to work. The best way to boost your faith is to put it to work. It's just a fact. So you have the encounter, then you have the call here. Real short uh, moment of calling. Verse 14, and the Lord Jehovah, that proper name. Notice now it doesn't say, and the angel of the Lord. Now it's saying the Lord turned to him. That's an awesome statement. That's saying that the implication there is that they're sitting there talking, but he steps up and gets in his face, face to face, looks him in the eye, basically, and says, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I, Jehovah, Yahweh, send you. So again, this person there referred to as the angel of the Lord, clearly identifying himself as Jehovah. Um, But he says... Mighty man of valor, go in this might of yours. Like, what might are you talking about, God? I mean, that's where Gideon's coming from. Like, what are you talking about? Gideon repeatedly struggles with personal faith and courage. And I love this about him. I mean, frankly, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying I can relate to that. You know what I mean? He never fails to worship. He never fails to honor God. But he constantly wrestles with what God's calling him to do. Immediately after this moment that we're talking about here, in his first act of obedience, the Bible tells us that he acts by night because he's too afraid to do it during the daytime. At the end of the same chapter, he puts out a fleece to try to make sure that God is with him. Twice he does that. In chapter 17, God calls him into a battle but cuts his soldiers from 30,000 down to 300. And then he gives Gideon this optional path forward if he is afraid. Literally what it says, if you're afraid, you could do this first. And Gideon takes the yes, I'm afraid option. So this guy's really struggling. This, the might that God is referring to here, it's not some inner strength that Gideon has that he doesn't know about. And I've heard a lot of preachers preach it that way and, and I, I don't mind standing here telling you I don't agree. I don't think that's what God is talking about. Like, oh, you have this might in you. You have this thing in you. You don't know is there. That's not where the might's coming from. Look at verse 12. I am with you. Verse 14. I sent you. Verse 16. I will be with you. Verse 18. I will stay. The might is related to the one who's present in the moment. I am with you, so go in this might of yours. That's the ticket. God says, I am with you, so go in this might of yours. And Gideon is a mighty man of valor, but that's because of the one who's called him to be. That's because the one who sent him, the one who's present with him. Of all men, God chose him. In all of his fear, in all of his doubt, in all of his concerns, why? Well, in Judges chapter 7, when God cut the army from 30,000 to 300, he says in verse 2, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. 
God knows that, hey, look, you'll write it off as something you did. You want to see a miracle? Let me use you to do what's impossible. You know? Let me use you to do what's impossible. You have the encounter. You have the call. Then look at this. You've got the challenge. This is where I, this is where I totally relate. Verse 15. And he said to him, please, Lord. Again, here's the word Adonai, that, that word ruler. So he still doesn't recognize who he's talking to here. But he doesn't have the history like Joshua did. So we're going to cut him some slack. He, why would he actually assume it is God himself? But he says, how can I save Israel? My clan's the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. He's like, I am not only a nobody, I'm the least of nobodies. How am I supposed to do it? Maybe he thinks this is a prophet, and he's trying to say, I hear you're a prophet and all, but you know, how am I supposed to do this? Why would God choose Gideon? I mean, that's a fair question. Why choose him? I mean, if you're God, like you're surely smarter than choosing Gideon. Come on, let's be serious here. If you're God and you're all wise and all wisdom, you've got to be smarter than choosing Gideon. I've heard it said many times, I don't know who originally said it, but God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27, you may know it. It's, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, key, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And thank you, Lord, for those verses. Because I know I fit in that category. You know me, you know my past. I mean, I know I fit in that category. And the fact that Manasseh says, how can I? Don't you know me? I could so relate to that. Maybe you can too. I don't know. Verse 16, Judges 6. And the Lord said to him, Jehovah, he always said, but I, Jehovah again, that proper name. And again, no reference to an angel here. This is a personal conversation between the two of them. I will be with you, singular, and you, singular, shall strike the Midianites as one man. Now, that implies a plural, right? If you're going to do it as one man. So, so just get the picture here. First, God comes with the singular you, Gideon, you know, and then Gideon makes it plural. No, us, Israel, help us. How are we, we, us, Israel? And then God makes it singular again. No, you, Gideon. And then Gideon makes it singular. How can I? Singular. And now God includes himself. I will be with you. He includes himself. I will be with you, Gideon. Singular. But he makes it plural by saying as one man. Implying that the people are together in this. It's unity. It's one, one act. One man. God, Gideon, and his people. All together as one man, all acting to accomplish the revelation of God's kingdom plan. And it's only possible because he's with them. Guys, I don't know if you know what the modern picture of that is, but you should. That's the church today. That's the way the church functions. It's not the pastor's job to display the and fight for the kingdom of God on earth. That's not the pastor's job. It's not the pastor's job to spread the gospel. I mean, he may be called by God. And only able to act because God's within him or else he's putting on a show for you. Um, but the mission is intended, not intended for him alone. 
The mission is intended for a body of believers who are acting as one. God's people acting as one because Christ is with them. One of our core values, the last of our core values is mission and it's unified mission. That's the point, unified mission. Making disciples is how the kingdom of God is revealed on earth. And that is a unified responsibility of the church. And our sole mission is to make disciples because that's how God's kingdom is to be revealed on earth. And we all do it. It's not my job as pastor. We all, it's all our responsibility. Verse 17, let's move forward quick here. And he said to him, if now I found favor in your eyes, then show me a sign. Boy, that's that. If you could sum Gideon's life up, it's that. Show me a sign. Uh, that it is you who speak with me. I need to know it's you, God speaking. I know I've felt that way plenty of times. God, how can I know this is you? Uh, and real quick side note, if you know the story of Gideon, he repeatedly says that, but that's not the model. Okay, so don't get in your mind that, oh, well, I need to play the fleece card. I need to do this, I need to do that. Those are, those are weaknesses on his part that God honors, but I relate. So verse 18, please do not depart from here, uh, Gideon says to, to God, until I come to you and bring out my present. That word present is gift or offering or tribute and set it before you. And he, God, angel of the Lord said, I will stay till you return. That's pretty cool because what he's about to do is going to take a while. It's not going to be really quick. It's going to take some significant time. But God says, I'll wait. Verse 19, so Gideon went into his house, prepared a young goat and unleavened cakes or bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he he put in a basket and the broth he put in a pot and brought them to God, the angel of the Lord, under the terebinth, under the tree and presented them. So why those steps? Like, Like Gideon says, I need proof it's you who speaks. And then he cooks some dinner. If you're reading the story there that might be what you see but take a minute to ask why would that be the case well maybe it's to test and i don't know but i'm wondering maybe if it's to test if god really knows gideon's heart because this is an offering not a meal he says my gift but what he's really getting at this is an offering not a meal maybe Gideon wants to see if you're really god do you really know my heart and i'll know because i'll know what you do with this when I give it to you. I'm going to give you something. Let's see how you respond to having it. And then I'll know who you are. If you scarf it down, maybe you're not who I think you are. Uh, verse 20. The angel of God said to him. Now we got that title, angel of God again. But this has all been the same person, right? It says, take the meat and the unleavened cakes and put them on this rock. So in other words, he doesn't even touch it. He says, okay, I tell you what. Thanks for bringing that here. Put it over there. Put it on the rock. Pour the broth over them. And he did so. So now you have a rock that's soaking wet. Okay? You have a rock that is soaking wet because the broth has been poured all over. Then the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand. He touched, uh, that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened cakes. And fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes. And just in case you think maybe it's in the desert and it was super hot outside. I live in the desert. It never gets so hot that rocks catch on fire. But I can promise you, when they're soaking wet, it's for sure not going to happen. All right? And the angel of the Lord then vanished from his sight. So let's look at what all went on there. So first of all, a couple of just some observations about what all was happening. You had meat and unleavened cakes. Uh, if you consider that meat to be lamb 
And those unleavened cakes to be unleavened bread, you basically have the Passover. It's a reminding of Exodus and Egypt. And remember, he said, where are all these signs we've been hearing about? So maybe he, this is the miracle times that he's asking about. He brings out a Passover meal and sets it in front of him. Moses hit the rock with his staff. And when he did, water came out. Here the angel of God hits the rock with his staff and fire comes out. Uh, you have a bush that was on fire with Moses, but it didn't actually burn or burn up. Here you have a rock that can't burn, but it does. You know, and then you can also look at that, the similarities with the rocks on top of Mount Sinai that burned, but didn't, weren't consumed. You have this fire that consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And that was what the uh, Israelites were told to do at the Passover. You must eat all of it, consume all of it. Moses told the people that God was a consuming fire. They had Moses' writings, and certainly those traditions were taught and passed down. It's likely Gideon knew it, that God was a consuming fire. So whatever it was that Gideon was looking for, God made like super clear in this moment that it's actually him that was calling. So, so you know what? Sometimes we doubt. I doubt. I feel like we all doubt. Sometimes even in the moment when we believe God is speaking to us, we still want clarity from him. We still want to understand more. And I don't know that it's always the rule, but it's certainly in his nature to honor that. To to wait. It's okay, I'll wait right here. You figure out how you want me to answer you, and I will. And to show us himself. And, and you know what? It may not be exactly what you're looking for, but it might convince you. And then sometimes it might be exactly what you're looking for, you know. Uh, I've been there. So you have the encounter, you have the call, you have this challenge from Gideon, and then you got the response. So closing up here, verse 22, then Gideon perceived or realized that he was the, if, if there were bold print in your Bible, it should be there, or, or uh, italics. He was the angel, not just an angel, he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said to him, peace be to you, don't fear, you shall not die. It's wild that when God disappears, when God is vanished, that's when Gideon sees. That's when Gideon perceives, when he can't see him anymore. And the voice is here. He hears this voice even though the visual is gone. That's a great picture of the Trinity. Uh, I am reminded of Jesus' baptism. Uh, you had the crowd all hearing the voice of God speak. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. You have Jesus who's physically there in front of everybody in the water, but also equally God. And then you have John, at least we know, maybe, maybe more, saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. He wasn't a dove, but in that kind of manner, like a dove drifting out of the sky. So, same kind of picture of the Trinity. I feel like the, the angel of the Lord in a physical sense, who is God in that moment, some would say Jesus in the Old Testament or the Son. I don't know. They called him the angel of the Lord, but he's that person of God. All right. And now he's gone and he hears this voice say this. And then Gideon makes it official here, makes this offering that was offered up officially, basically right where that rock is. Verse 23, um, the Lord says to him, peace be to you, do not fear, you shall not die. And then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace. To this day, it stands. Uh, so basically, right on his property, right there in that place where this happened, he builds an altar called the Lord is peace. Well, why name it that? That's a weird name, you know. 
They live in a time that's anything but peaceful. And God just called Gideon to start a a rebellion. It's a weird thing to name it that. And nobody's really sure why. But I, I wonder, is it possible that in the middle of this horrible circumstance that they're in, this terrible time, that God's presence has brought a peace to Gideon? Um, even in assigning Gideon a mission. Maybe there's a sense of peace there now that, man, you know what? God has not forgotten us. God is here. Even though he's given me something to do, his presence is going to go with me. And maybe that brings a peace in his heart. Maybe it's just the fact that he's seen God and he realizes it and he believes he should die. And he should because God's word says, you see me, you're going to die. But instead he does not. God's response to that is, yeah, you should, but we're going to have peace instead. Jesus is the prince of peace. Jesus is the one that makes peace between God and man. And that is the way that we can see him and not die. Christ covers our sins. So is God among us, you know, you should be seeing this thread as we've been going through talking about it. That when he is, when he does show up, when he does appear, it's always, uh, the result is always fear and worship. The response is always worship. And here you have that same response is before he takes a step forward to do anything, you have worship. So what does this mean for us today? Well, um, do you need to see Jesus standing underneath a tree? You need to see God come shout at you from under under a tree. One thing to remember is that Gideon, uh, uh, along with all of the believers that came before Acts chapter 2, all of them had a different situation than we did. They didn't have the Holy Spirit within them. They weren't sealed by the Holy Spirit. That came after Acts chapter 2, and everyone who's a believer since has that. We're sealed with the Holy Spirit. We also have a copy of God's Word. If you're like me, you got it on your phone. You got it in multiple translations on your phone. They didn't have that. Most of them, almost all of them, wouldn't even have had a written copy. Um, it would have been a scroll stored in a temple or something. So we have these things in order to hear his call. What, what we have, the resources that we have to hear from God are far greater than what they had and what Gideon had. And also, though, it's certainly possible he may appear to you. He might show up. Uh, but I've said this before. I mention it often. I would warn you, if that's what you're looking for, I would warn you. I believe that the level of the revelation is typically in direct proportion to the call. So what I mean by that is if you have this revelation, you actually see him, he actually talks to you, what he's going to call you to do is probably going to take some incredible epic faith, like the kind that comes with great suffering and maybe even death. So I would just bear that one in mind, you know. But if you're a believer, listen, the amazing thing here for me is that God doesn't just save. Jesus doesn't just save. See all the bumper stickers and the signs, Jesus saves. Yeah, but he does so much more than that. He calls he sins, you know, you're part of his kingdom plan. You and me both, we're part of his plan. You need to be in prayer. That's what I would say, seeking what it is that he's calling you to do. And I can tell you with certainty that whatever he calls you to do, whether specifically or not. So maybe you're like, well, I'm not called into ministry. Well, maybe not, but I know one thing you're called to do because we're all called to do it. And that's make disciples. Jesus made that crystal clear 
before he left in Matthew 28, 19. We are all called to make disciples. So my first question would be, before you ask what I'm called to do or what my purpose is, my first question would be, are you making disciples? If not, I'd probably start there. That's probably where I begin. And I can almost guarantee you, if you start making disciples and you are seeking more of a calling from God, you might hear it. All right? But maybe you never turned your life over to him. Maybe that's never happened. Maybe you've never done that. Maybe the you feel the weight of oppression. You feel the weight of being lost or afraid or the weight of your past or sin just in general. Like, who could love me? Who could use me? God could have nothing to do with me. Believe me, I know that feeling. Maybe you're even hiding. I don't know. Maybe there's junk in your life that, that, that you're in hiding and you're sick of it. And you're wondering, where's God right now? Where is God right now? Uh, I love this passage. I'm even going to read it because it's so good. In Acts 17, Paul wrote this. He said, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that, listen, they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Man, that's awesome news. Maybe you need to give your life to God. Maybe you need to give him all of you because he made all of you. Maybe it's time to do that. Maybe it's time to let the God who created everything have you. Maybe it's time that you placed yourself into his hands. And I can tell you right now, you have been placed here. He said it in that. I can tell you because his word said so. I just read it. He placed you here. In fact, I would argue he placed your ears and your eyes where you're hearing this today and where you're seeing me say it. So maybe it's time to realize he's not far from you. He's not far from you. He's only a prayer of repentance away. I would challenge you to do it today. In your own words, however you want to, just connect with him and tell him, I'm yours. I'm sorry. I, I mean, you can confess every sin if you want, but that's not the point. What you're confessing is that you are a person who sins and that you need him. And you offer him your life. And then you get plugged up, man. Hit us up or somebody that makes disciples and get with a good church and learn how to follow him. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word. It is awesome as always. I pray, God, you continue to help us be faithful and understand who you are and hear from you and obey you when we do. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.